I create events before I go to them, much like Larry Bird, the famous basketball player, would sit in the stands and see all of his shots before the game was ever played. And so some people may not believe in that. They may have questions about that. And the most important thing with that is to try. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a number one ranked recruiter and former C-level talent executive with numerous awards. In his two-decade-plus long career, he's helped recruit, hire, and manage talent at some of the top technology firms and unicorn startups. He's coached everyone from salespeople to Harvard scientists to CEOs and everyone in between to get hired and win. And if that isn't impressive enough already, he's also a published author. He's taken his years of experience and distilled it into a groundbreaking hands-on, proven, scientific approach, cracking job interviews. His book reveals a science that, when learned and practiced aggressively, will allow you to go on the offensive, controlling and creating the interview the way you want it, while answering all the hiring manager's questions, often before they're asked. And today, he's here to share some tips with us so that we're ready to crush our next interview. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, author of Cracking the Code to Successful Interview, Evan Pellet. Evan, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really appreciate it. Harpreet, so excited to be here. Thank you. It's an honor. Oh man, I'm super excited to get into your, your book. I was so happy when I found it on Audible. It was included in my prime membership and I was like, oh, this thing is interesting. I started going through it and I was like, oh man. Got to get this. Got to get this guy on the show. I know that the audience is going to love to hear from you. Um, so I'm super happy that you made time to be here. Talk to us about what kind of kids you were in high school. Sure. Yeah. So high school, uh, I enjoyed athletics and basketball, especially, and was kind of social, but was also a little withdrawn. I think I was shy. So, you know, I talk with people, but I was more on the fringes of different groups. And my dad was a chemical engineer, so I kind of had that mindset of wanting to pull things apart. Didn't know it as much at the time. But, you know, so, yeah, I was sort of a evolving kid, didn't really know which group I belonged in. So when you were in high school, like, what did you think that your future would look like? 
And how different is your life now than what you thought it would be? Great question. You know, in high school, I felt like I might end up in sales or in public speaking. And that was a dream for me. There are some similarities, only going the psychology route, I didn't think I would go to get the master's in industrial psychology. So that shifted. And then I was pretty social too. I wasn't as focused on my studies early on. So I think my father, who has passed on some years ago, uh, got up and cheered wherever he is when I wrote the book because he couldn't get me as focused. I was a little bit more socially uh, involved. And then eventually, you know, I got to really get into the book and into my studies. So after high school, you went to college, you studied into industrial psychology. Now, that's an interesting topic. Um, talk to us a little bit about what, what that is. What is industrial psychology? Sure. You know, so I went towards uh, first counseling psychology, then industrial organizational psychology. And what happened, Harpreet, is that I really wanted to focus on group training, group transformation, helping people. And I had taken some trainings that were experiential in nature when I was about 19, and it pushed me in that direction. So in the industrial psych world, what I realized is that groups and people in corporations didn't really have strategies to get human behavior outcome. It was sort of hit or miss and a lot of different personalities, people dealing with each other. So a lot of what I was focused on was task design, motivation, uh, behavior change. And the passion that it all really moved towards was how do we change behavior or how do we predict certain outcomes in real time? And so that's uh, why I went back for the master's and post-master's work. And along the way, you've had, you know, from, from then until now, you've had some amazing experience working at companies such as Oracle and just crushing it there with all sorts of uh, number one awards and, and things of that nature. Talk to us a little bit about your, your professional experience and how did all this work you did professionally, like, how did that inspire the idea for your book? Well, I went into the corporate world at Oracle, and what happened, Harpreet, which was amazing, is I got all these advanced degrees, and my passion was uh, into becoming a corporate psychologist, and when I finished, all the jobs dried up. And so I had to either go on for a PhD or reinvent myself. And I had a friend of the family that knew someone who was a recruiter, at Oracle, guy Bill Donovan. I went to speak with him. He was actually the director of recruiting. And I had met him when I was younger. And I had run into him at a family event, of all things, a funeral, and was chatting with him and telling him what I was doing. And I thought he might help me get a corporate psychologist job, but he, he couldn't. You know, they'd all dried up at that point. So he spoke to me about recruiting. And at that time, I said, you know, Thank you. I just I want to go to workshops. I want to save the world. I want to transform companies. It didn't seem right to me. But the more we spoke, I realized that there was some great income potential. And, you know, we spoke as well about the rewards of developing recruiting programs and different things that hadn't been solved in the recruiting world. So I got into Oracle. I didn't know how to do email, uh, anything technical wise, knew nothing about anything from a technology standpoint. And so I had to learn it all quickly, too. And that's something that in really the toughest company in the world, I learned everything and became their number one recruiter in six months. And then uh, 
broke all the hiring records. But where the book was inspired is that a woman came in the interview at Oracle and it was a very tough interview process. They're very strict. She was a friend of a friend. And when interviewing Harper, she actually was walking across the carpet and she caught her foot and she fell flat on her face in the middle of Oracle. And Oracle could be very unforgiving. You know, if, if you did something like that or even the slightest mistake, they'd say, hey, wonderful, great to see you. Thanks for coming. Uh, the door's there next. And th there was no uh, word mincing or shame about it. Uh, the company was so intense. So I whisked her off to a side room and I quickly gave her part of the research science and said, listen, you need to do this, 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 and you need to make an impact. And here's what you need to talk about that's true to your experience. And if you don't do that, you're not going to secure their attention in this interview. And they're going to say, see you later. And so she did that. And I didn't think she'd get the job. I just figured I'd be consoling her and speaking to her friends that I knew. And she ended up getting the job from one of the toughest hiring managers in the world there. Amazing guy, brilliant. And so what happened was I started to believe in the fact that I actually had a science and a plan. And I began to write it out and put it all together at that moment. I'm excited to get into this, this uh, eight-step process, the Rebridge framework. Walk us through this. Sure, definitely. And I want to say, too, the Rebridge framework also came out of seeing about a 1,000 people fail the job interview at Oracle that should have had the job. And so what I noticed in the Rebridge science, I really focused on eight areas that were absolutely key. Some of these were from, it was really a marriage, I should say, from my psychology background, also from getting visibility, and being able to listen to the top leaders at Oracle and other companies when they debriefed after a candidate left, because I became the number one recruiter very quickly at Oracle and was breaking records. And But the benefit of that, when I broke the all-time hiring record and got the best recruiter award, is that these people, these senior vice presidents started saying, hey, Evan, come on in, come sit with us while we talk. And normally, if you're not a good recruiter, they leave you outside the room when they debrief. But I started to get all this behind-the-scenes guidance, coaching, and got to listen. So what I found out was that these areas are areas that every manager needs to know in order to say yes. However, some of these areas, they didn't even know that they needed to know these things or from someone. They were just trying to get all this. And so what I came up with is in Reprich, results, energy, attitude, processes, relationships, then interviewing them, then learning to close them for the job, and then moving to humanity, I realized those were steps, but they had to be done in a certain order because they needed to keep the hiring manager awake and present and in the conversation. So um, from a results standpoint, anybody that interviews someone, one of their biggest questions from a results standpoint is, is this person going to perform on my team? Are they going to be a good investment for me? Or are they going to cause me pain when they get here through their failure? So every manager, sometimes I will say every manager spends 45 minutes trying to figure out someone's results and look through it so that they can make a, a sort of a verbal commitment to themselves that, yes, I believe in this person. I see what they've done. 
and I know that they're going to be able to perform here. But oftentimes, they don't even get all that information uh, with all their probing. So what I did with the results piece is I have people quantify their results and basically pull, even if they're not number one or number two, but pull all their results out of the things they've done. Because even if they had 10 responsibilities in a job, chances are they were probably the best at two of them. And even someone, say a financial analyst, might have saved the company money. They might have finished products ahead of time, 20% ahead of time. Uh, someone that's an engineer or a scientist often discovers things or data or the way things go together. They're often chosen to say, hey, I want you to take on this and this. So there's a lot of results that people can differentiate themselves with that show where they were better, smarter, faster, and stronger. And so what I look to do is get people to sow a string of results from their first time in high school right up into the current. So one to two to five results from everything that they've done. And in the beginning of the interview, if you had me in and you said, Evan, you know, thanks for coming in. Tell me about why we should hire you as a recruiting executive. And I would say, well, Harpreet, I was number one recruiter at Oracle, broke the all-time hiring record, won the best recruiter award, and I doubled net revenue as a C-level talent person and a COO within my first opportunity after being a recruiting leader as I rose up the ranks. But that's a small portion of my results. But the thing is, I want to leave you with no doubt about who I am and what I've done. So results is the first thing. And then second is energy. If you don't have energy in the interview while you're delivering your results, that hiring manager is going to be thinking about, oh, uh, did I do my laundry? What am I having for dinner? What are my weekend plans? So your energy has to really capture them. It has to kind of hit home. So I have people practice in the mirror, get excited, come through so that people say, wow, there's someone sitting in front of me. They're here. The next piece is attitude. You got to have a great attitude. So many people bang their past employer. It's, it's unfortunate. Or they find a way, focus on negative or negative things. And that's much different than probing questions. But it's amazing how many people let their personal stuff flow up even into an interview process or someone who hasn't talked to anybody in a while. Sometimes they might say, yeah, you have done all this and it's great. But Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened to my sister this weekend. Although we're human and we do care, that moment comes afterwards uh, in the conversation. So in the next part, I will say, and I'll go through half, and then if you have questions for me, I can finish the second half of Rebridge. But the next letter is P for processes. So if you have great results over here, a manager, I've had managers walk out and say, I love this person, Evan, but I have no idea how they got to those great results. And I would say, well, but they have, they were number one here and there. And they said, yeah, but I have no idea. So sensory acuity for a hiring manager is your processes that you either used, developed, or adopted somehow in order to get to your results. So in mine, I would say developed an employer referral program, made more outreach through calls and LinkedIn and email than any other recruiter made sure that my outreaches had security opportunity possibility in them. Like I would give them the specifics that would help them say, okay, this guy really did do all these amazing things. And in processes too, Harper, which is very interesting um, in those is sometimes a manager too might say, well, Harpreet, you know, 
that's a great process. We've wanted to do that here, or we've never thought how to do that. You'd be able to bring that to this team, and you can say yes. And other ones, they might say, yes, I understand that's a good one, or we need to perfect in this area. But managers, really, they need to know what you did and how you did it. What were your results and how did you get there? And they need to feel it with energy and a great attitude. So that's the first half of REAP Richmond. Any questions? Yeah, definitely. Uh, coming back up to the, the first R, the results. So how do we make sure that we're demonstrating that we produced strong results in the past? Sure. And, and keep in mind, anybody at any level can do this. But the way we demonstrate that is we gather our rankings or our percentages, any awards we've gotten, anywhere where we finished projects sooner, anywhere we were selected for a project, because some people never, never have gotten an award or they, there's no ranking of, hey, you're number one data scientist or engineer here. Another result is performance reviews. Sometimes people can say, hey, I was there for four years and every single year I got an eight level performance review or a five on a scale of one to five. And normally they can say, my boss selected me to be the lead on these two projects, even though I wasn't the senior engineer and I had to do special presentations. So if you get A-level performance reviews and you're selected to do a couple things, and if you finish those projects 20% ahead of time and made a discovery, the results would be in that particular role. Harpreet, I got A-level performance reviews as a data scientist. I was specially selected to do the research on those two areas that we spoke about before that were very key. I finished those projects 20% ahead of the expected time on both of them. And while doing that, I found something that actually allowed us to solve a technical glitch that we weren't able to do before. And they had been working on that for a year and a half and couldn't make that happen. So that's a very gentle example of results. But as an accountant, it might be percentages, money saved. As a salesperson, it might be how you were ranked, your percentages to quota. As a data scientist, it might be, how did you do against your goals? I completed 100% of my goals within this year, but I also completed three other projects. So you could say, hey, if I had 10 things to do and I did three other things, I guess technically we could say you did 130% of your expected goals as a scientist. So everything can be broken down, quantified into numbers if we really take time. But that's the thing. People spend all this time on education. They do all this work, but they don't take that half hour or an hour to really pull all the data out of what they've done and who they are. Is that helpful for results? Yeah, definitely. So it, it could be something like for a data scientist, like I had deployed a model into production and now the model's out there serving predictions to our stakeholders, which is now reducing the amount of time that they spend on doing some review tasks by two hours a week per person. So that, that could be like a real tangible result there. And we can also talk about, well, along the way to do that, right? We also had to build this data pipeline that took this raw data and essentially massage it and come up with a useful data model so that we can build a machine learning model with. So it's also all the other stuff that we did that leads up to the actual result as well, right? Yes, definitely. Definitely. 
And your language and data science is so key on, you know, what we built, what was put out there, but then the steps leading up to it are a result because, and you might also say in some cases, I was the person who was able to get the first release of this done, or um, I was expected to do one and I did three in a year's time. So anything that quantifies, but uh, I think you're right on the money there. Absolutely. So let's talk about energy. So what can we do to make sure our energy is on point? Because I know a lot of people will, they'll have a job interview and they'll just be, you know, stomachs and knots, their cold sweat, they're feeling nervous, they're, you know, maybe the, the nervousness has clouded their, their thinking and they're not communicating as well as they should in the interview. How do we take that nervousness and make it into something positive? Yes, yes, such a great question. So energy is energy, however we experience it. Often the nervous energy or fear is that same energy that we have when we have exuberant happiness or joy or even energy flowing through us. So the biggest thing in interviewing is getting rid of the fear. The problem, though, is many times people resist it or they don't know how to transcend fear and transform it. So, and also from an energy standpoint, having great energy it's, is a lot different than having fearful energy, right? We can be all revved and nervous and people can feel it when we're frenetic and we're all uh, charged with the improper energy. So first thing we learn how to do is breathe. Breathe because people often get nervous and they get fearful and they hold their breath. So we breathe is the first thing. But Energy-wise, I learned to practice because my energy, when I was going to be a corporate psychologist, I had to change it all around for interviewing and for Oracle because it would be like, um, Harpreet, how are you today? And how are you feeling? In a very soft voice, a psychologist's voice. And I had to become command, quick, direct, awakened. So breathing while we're speaking. Second thing, looking in the mirror and speaking to ourselves that's a very awkward exercise. It makes us uncomfortable, but it's much better to be uncomfortable alone with you than in the interview. The third thing is while you're practicing energy is raising your voice up and down so you're not uncomfortable with raising it up and down. And in the mirror, moving some of your facial expressions up and down. So, do, you know, making funny ones. Because one of the biggest things is when we kick energy into horsepower and we've been sitting there and all of a sudden I say, Harpreet, I'm so excited to be here today. Boy, I love everything you've done in the company. If we're not used to pushing that through us, we can become nervous and shake because it's very awkward. So the biggest thing for energy is to practice delivering it outside of and before that interview room. It can be even interviewing in front of friends. It's much like public speaking, but we can't really... It's almost like if we put the horsepower into a vehicle that's not equipped to handle it, you know, um, something's going to fall off or something won't work. So when we put this energy horsepower and we get it within us, we basically have to be able to accommodate it. But I want to say too, related to that is a big part of energy is learning to determine your inner state before things happen. So the way I do that, and which is jumping ahead of it, but it's visualization, because I create events before I go to them, much like Larry Bird, the famous basketball player, 
would sit in the stands and see all of his shots before the game was ever played. And so some people may not believe in that. They may have questions about that. And the most important thing with that is to try. Because sometimes people can have contempt prior to investigation, right? They say, oh, no, that's not work. That's not proven. So I, I mentioned to people, think about someone you haven't seen, and you may have done this before, and all of a sudden, they walk up behind you, or you're at a phone booth, and someone comes walking towards you, or the person calls you. We do this all the time. We create things, and then it shows up on the outside, but we don't even know it. So, But to be responsible for our energy, first, we need to be able to get to inner peace. We need to alleviate the fear. And I talk about that a lot in the book, but meditation has been key for me because I create every event, everything. I alleviate the fear. And I used to be very nervous, by the way. I'd go into these interviews or have to talk at Oracle, and I'd be like, I would freeze. And so I had to learn to also give me some peace that would allow myself to sit in fear and walk through the fear. So feel the fear, walk through. But I will say in visualization and meditation, as well as talking in the mirror, practicing lowering your voice, moving your facial expressions around, practicing being loud, you'll be able to bring the energy through you. But if you want it to be an authentic energy, then meditate and practice how you want to feel and how you want to deliver and see it ahead of time. And 15 minutes a day for two or three days or five minutes a day even will change the way your energy is. You'll feel that source within you. When we talk about the inner landscape, and you're going to ask me about that, if we can change our inner landscape, we have a miraculous world within us that is limitless. If we can change that landscape and access that source power that's within us, we can bring that through us and miraculously affect the outside. And people feel it from us. They feel the excitement. People want energy, especially if you've done eight interviews and someone comes in and you're like, oh, no, is it one more person? And if that person comes in and wakes you up, whether they're the first, the middle, or the last, you're going to remember that person more than anybody else. absolutely love that. That's like that vocal variety is super important but you don't want to be in an interview and just be spitting stuff out very monotonously right so try to think about how you can use some vocal variety in in your delivery and one thing i used to do back when i was in the interview game i would do that visualization like you talked about i would look up the people i was going to interview with online okay now i know what their face looks like awesome maybe let me see if i can find them on youtube so i can hear what their voice looks like and what their mannerisms are like um, sometimes that's hit and miss but if you at least find them on LinkedIn, you've got a picture of the face. And what I would do is I would go on long walks, just you know, go on long walks as it is, but I would just play the conversation in my head. All right, cool, I'm going to go wear this suit, walk in this way, I'm going to shake my hand this way, I'm going to tell my story about myself in this way, here's where I'm going to put emphasis on, on these particular words, and here's where I'm going to just visualize the experience before it even happens. That way it's... Yes. it's it's almost like you trick your brain into thinking that you've been there, done that before. So that when it actually happens, it's like, oh, not so bad. Yes. Oh, my God. I love that. That is right on in visualizing what you're going to say, visualizing their reaction. The interesting thing about the brain, someone explained to me recently, is it doesn't know the difference between 
what we're visualizing and creating and what's out here. And so that's wonderful you would do that. And would you notice more of a flow and a peace when you'd be in the interviews if you practice? Yeah, most definitely. Because then I'd also just remind myself that actually like, this is not like a verbal exam. Yeah, I'm here for a job. But at the end of the day, they're human beings who have a requirement they're trying to fill for a job. And they're just talking to me to see if I'm the right person for those requirements. Um, obviously, I have to do the best I can to communicate that I'm the person they're looking for. But it's just a conversation at the end of the day. and Just treat it like a conversation. Not like you're on trial, you know, begging for your life in front of a judge. Part about, uh, you know, your brain sometimes can't tell the difference. One thing I was, uh, that, that I've come across in just researching stuff is, like the same part of the brain that makes you nervous, right? It's that it's the old part of your brain, like in that limbic system. That limbic system doesn't have any capacity for actually labeling an emotion. And physiologically, that nervous response is the exact same response as an excited response. Yes. So it's that thinking part of your brain, prefrontal cortex, that is labeling this as, oh, I have a job interview coming up this physiological response must indicate that I'm nervous. And so you tell yourself you're nervous and you start thinking about that. What if instead you say, actually, I'm excited. Like, this is super cool. Like, I have an opportunity for me to, like, this could change my life. This is such an exciting opportunity, such a great company. I get to talk to some great people. Like, yeah, I'm excited. Of course, I'm excited. I should be excited. Yes. And that helps a lot too. Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. Reframing it. So important. So now that we're getting into the attitude of being in the, the interview, talk to us about this inner landscape that you had mentioned. So the inner landscape is really our inner experience. And I do a lot of work with people from a coaching perspective now on eliminating stress and fear, whether it's as an executive for an interview. So the inner landscape Whatever that is, we can fake sometimes, and everybody, even when we're fearful, right? We feel the fear, we walk through it, and eventually it dissipates. But the inner landscape is our inner experience, and whatever is within that landscape is normally what we bring forward into our interviews and into the physical. So I will say this from a almost from a visualization and connection standpoint. It's also very similar to um, if you are thinking about a certain car that you want to buy. I don't know if you ever noticed that you start to see them everywhere and you notice every single one. The brain is trained to connect towards those things. So the inner landscape, whatever we're focusing on, is what we create out here. And so there's different definitions of that. Wayne Dyer, one of my favorite authors, would call it our real magic zone. Uh, and other people, many of them I'm sure you hear about, we become what we think about all day long, or we can't afford the luxury of a negative thought. So whatever is... Reticular in, activating system. That's Yes, reticular activating system. Exactly, exactly. And I just had mentioned that last week, and I had forgotten the, the term there. And So when we're focused on our inner landscape and we can create it, just like a painting or a work of art from scratch, if we're visual, 75% of people are visual, some are hearing or auditory oriented, others are feeling oriented. So we have to either show ourselves what we're going to see, tell ourselves what we're going to say and what we're going to hear, but also tell ourselves what we're going to feel. And we, if we cover those three areas in the inner landscape, we're able to then 
come in and deliver that exact landscape into the interview process. If we're in fear, confused, hesitant, nervous, then we're probably not going to communicate that inner landscape. So the inner landscape is about winning the game here within ourselves before we ever show up to spend any time in person. What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode i love that you mentioned in the attitude section um the growth mindset how do we demonstrate our growth mindset in the interview process Great point. And this is something also, too, I'm so glad you brought this up because it's the growth mindset area has expanded as to what it covers and what there's permission for. And it really depends as well on the evolution of a company, the higher consciousness of them. So growth mindset, essentially, if we were going to boil it down, means that um, do I have the grit when tested in my life and I fall flat on my face? to stand up and walk through what the test is, or even if I get run over to get up, dust myself off and move forward again. And so some companies that are very deep into this will look for times where you have failed and they want to know that you failed, you fell flat on your face and you got up and you kept going because if you're working hard, you may perhaps or will likely fail somewhere in your job and they want to know how quickly and how well you can get past it. But Growth mindset also has a lot to do with grit when we're tested, when we're pushed to the edge. Um, Some people could have a boss, a customer, something that tested them. Some people might start down an accounting path and say, no, I want to be an engineer. They had to confront something in life. So growth mindset is really about showing that you have the ability to have introspection and grow, but also have the grit to walk through things. And Folks that have never been tested or uh, are trying to just look really good, sometimes they're not able to go within and call forth an experience that's authentic. And so you don't, it's, you know, it's, it's something that you don't want to be untruthful about. You need to pick out two or three things that you can say, hey, I was tested here and this is what I did and this is how I walked through it. And that looks to show too that you're always willing to grow. You don't let the outer circumstances determine you, but you decide who you are no matter what happens. Absolutely love that. Carol Dweck's book, Growth Mindset. I wish I had been introduced to that book when I was like a kid. Um, I didn't come across her work until I was well into my 30s, like mid-30s. And I've become such a different person because of it. And just the belief that just... You can figure anything out with enough time. You, you can figure out what you got to do. And at the end of the day, like, you know, all of your efforts, they're actually going to be rewarded with new skills. You'll learn something, you'll get better. You're not just who you are. You're not just 
you're not your shoe size, right? You can you can grow and you can change. But yeah, so that book I definitely have right on my bookshelf here, along with Grit on the lowest possible uh, shelf, so that whenever my son learns how to read, he can just go and pick them up, hopefully, and they're easy access for him. That's great. I love that thought process with that too. And uh, she's amazing in writing that book. And um, it's also very important too, like from a process standpoint, when we have a great attitude and we're willing to grow, they're going to look at your processes of creativity around growth, around breaking through things. So the attitude and the processes and reap, you know, they tend to touch up against each other and marry each other, if that makes sense. And the processes to figure things out. Um, I had a gentleman, uh, a senior person at Bose one time, hire a guy with a bachelor's degree over a PhD. And he tells the story and that we were speaking at Olin, I was the keynote there and he came and spoke. And what he spoke about specifically was that this person built a car one summer in high school and just that's what they did. And the creativity, the commitment, the tenacity impressed them so much that they said, wow, that's amazing. So as we move towards our processes on how we got to our results, it's important anything where we've been creative or overachieved. Uh, I had another gentleman get into um, the uh, Berkeley out in California do amazingly well, but he had had an awful head injury and uh, in skateboarding, and he had to learn everything from start again. And his mom had me coach him and work with him, and he ended up doing amazing at Berkeley. He got an Amazon internship, then he got a Facebook internship, and now he just got the big job offer from Facebook when he graduates. So, but the thing is that one of his creative areas is in high school. He built a key fob business you know, like kind of uh, fun key fobs for people. And he got it going and he thought it was nothing, but he actually made it very successful. And so he had a result in creativity early on that allowed them to say, hey, and he was coaching all his friends and he didn't think he had any results. But when we really pulled it down and his mom had hired me to work with him for some time, um, he had many results. And then he also had many processes and a lot of creativity Uh, And no real experience in the work world, but he was able to make distinctions about himself to get Berkeley, then Amazon and Facebook. And now he's the vice president of a club that Jeff Bezos was actually in. And uh, he, I've coached him on public speaking for that club and how to make an impact. So if he can come back from that head injury and can see the things and what he's done, it shows us that anybody can really do anything if they're determined. Such a great story. And I think that also kind of talks about something much larger, I think, at least from my perspective, that when you're going for a job, for a particular role, it's assumed that on a technical level that you can control C, control V between candidates, right? Copy and paste the technical skills between candidates because that's what is table stakes for the game. That's what's table stakes to even get past the HR phone screen and into that room, right? And it's, yeah. it's these... It's other things that separate you, like things like these creative activities, these extracurricular type of activities that you do that will help separate you from your competition. Is that, is that right? Yes, definitely. And, and that's a very strong piece of it because what they want to know what makes you work harder, be more creative, 
one thing that he also did, which was just a natural for him, is when they were assigned a problem in college or high school, a lot of people would be like, oh, I don't want to work on this, and they'd brush it off. He'd say, no, I want to solve this, and he stayed and you know did those things. So being able to show where you went over, above, and beyond in all these areas is really key. But also, too, I think um, you know someone who can show from that perspective – you know, what their mindset is and how they approach those things is just super key. Absolutely. And I will say technical skills, people talk about those in their results sometimes or in their processes to say, I've reached this level or I've done that or I've done that. There's usually a point where they're tested and sometimes that's before they even get the formal interview. So what they're really looking for though in those extra added things is, is this person going to work harder? Are they going to take on things? Are they going to run up hills to learn? Do they have a passion for learning? Or are they just going to come in and sit in here and do the job? So all the ways you could show where you did more, were more creative, you know, even if you didn't go to Harvard, that's fine. Or if you went to, I've had people that have gone to very simple schools, but they can show how much more tenacious and active they were. And they may have hit their stride at 20, so they didn't, you know, get into the best schools. But boy, when they really stepped on the pedal, they sometimes get the job over the big, strong degrees as well. And when it comes to process, is there a framework that we can use to explain our results? I've heard the STAR format as a, as a popular way to communicate that. Where does that fit into this? Great point. So, so there's a reason, I just to go back for one second, the results are first because you want to catch their attention and blow them away and have them say, oh my God, I've got a real person here sitting and I can see a string sewn throughout their life of performance. So I don't have to worry about if they're going to perform. Then I feel their energy and attitude. But process, um, process is very important because, um, you know, as we weave that together, we want to give processes that relate to our actual results. And then on the front end, because we want to get their attention in process at first, to capture their attention, the second part of process would be the creativity piece. So if I was interviewing, I would say, developed an employer referral program, did more outreach. Uh, we did 900% more outreach than any other recruiting group has ever done. Um, Rebranded the message in such a way to hit all these areas. And our response rate went up by 78%. Uh, also made relationships with eight top SVPs in the industry, got them into lunch and speaking at a talk so we could probe them about them and their people. So I would talk about my processes, very specific to the job they were hiring me for. But then I would say, uh, I also have specially designed very creative employer referral programs, really upping resumes and hires by about 500%, starting with Oracle and with every company since then, it's been between 500 and 1000%. So I enjoy doing that. I can show you how to do that here. So, um, but last thing in my processes, one thing that's very important is I say to people, hey, I'm normally the first one in and the last one to go. I make more phone calls. I build more relationships. I'm more energetic and have more activity than my peers. So that's not a specific process, but I like to remind them that I like to work and I outwork the folks around me. Awesome. So that's the first part of the framework. That's the results, energy, attitude, process. That's the reap part. 
Now let's get into the rich part. That's the relationships, interview, the interviewer, closing, and humanity. Uh, can you walk us through this rich part of the framework? Yes, absolutely. So relationships, people want to know, can you make a new relationship and how you make a new relationship and quickly because in business or engineering or science, you have to be able to interact with people uh, unless they've got you sequestered in a room back somewhere and you're so smart that they just leave you there. But most times you're going to need something or you're going to need uh, different pieces. So they want to know, how do you make relationships immediately with new people? They also want to know, they want to hear a couple examples of long-term relationships you have because they want to know that you don't just make a relationship and then burn it out, that you can actually sustain because that will show them you can sustain there. And then Lastly, and I say this jokingly in the book, and I know we had connected in, in the write-up about this, is, you know, can you play nicely with others? And sometimes people will joke and say, can you play nicely with the other kids? Um, this is so important because if you have results and energy and seem to have a great attitude and you know your processes, but you're upsetting everybody around you because you have either an abrasive personality or you're getting entanglings over things with everybody all the time, um, that manager is going to want to know that before they hire you. So, by, so giving these relationships pieces helps reinforce that you're not that person because nowadays there's sort of a no-jerk rule in a lot of companies um, and it's become strict. So if you don't get along with others, no matter how brilliant you are, they'll show you the door because they want to have a culture and community and people's rights. So I even know some folks that are difficult personalities. You know, they like to get in there with people and debate and that's fine, but it's not what you do, it's how you do it. So long-term relationships, can you make short-term relationships? Can you give two examples of each quickly? So I will simply say, I enjoy making relationships with my coworkers. I often bring in Bobby, who I've known for 26 years, who's an incredible recruiting executive. He'll come and give a talk to some of my people and the teams. Uh, even one of my teachers from college loves all the stuff we're doing in technology here at Oracle. So they might stop in and uh, I've known them for 10 years and 26 years. And beyond that, how I make relationships with new people is I really listen to them. I focus in on who they are. I spend time doing non-reactive listening, not thinking about what I'm going to say, but really hearing them. Once I've heard some of that, I repeat it back to them, and I look to speak to areas that are key, critical, and important to them. I listen to them as a person and a professional, such that a connection and a trust is made in a rapport. And then from that point, do I begin to guide a relationship and see where it's going to go? So if I'm going really fast, I might give an example of a recent relationship I made. Oh, I just met the president of Fidelity, saw him on an elevator, was able to speak for a few minutes, connect, care about him and his kids. Before I knew it, he wanted me to coach his kids and spend time. I'm going over to the house for dinner next Sunday. So examples are also good. The STAR method, the only thing, some of these are outdated, but they also don't predict the reaction in the person's nervous system. So if I can just up to where we are, the questions behind the questions are unconscious. So when you're stating your results, what you're really doing is you're answering that unconscious question of, oh my God, how do I know that this person is going to perform for me? And the only way they can know that is if they feel and can get their arms around that you have had results at some level throughout your life consistently, not just 
once in a while. Also, energy, the question behind that question is, yes, they get awoken from it, but can they have the energy to stick in here and do the job and make connections with other people? Energy is such a big part of things nowadays. If you go in and you're like, hi, how you doing? Uh, you know, people are going to be like, is he going to make it through this? Like, will he be able to make it through the first three months? You know, so attitude is so important because if you're banging someone else or you're talking about things you shouldn't be or you don't show a great attitude of positivity, they immediately associate that with what's going to happen on the job. And one of the biggest fears for hiring managers after they feel confident in you and they feel you have results and a process is really before that too, is what's your attitude? Are you going to get along with others? And that moves right towards relationships. Um, so relationships, you know, the biggest thing is this guy has everything I need or this woman has everything I need. Oh no, are they going to be a pain in the ass with all my employees and get in arguments or fights with everybody? I get they have all this, but I don't understand how they do relationship. I don't get a good sense or feeling that of how they develop these things. So what you're in essence doing is you're giving them volunteering truthful facts about what they would spend all their trying to figure out. And normally those eight things, they might get three of them done, possibly four, and not always to their total satisfaction. So you're giving them statements they can remember consciously, but you're answering those unconscious questions. So once again, are they going to perform for me? Will they have the energy to hang in there? And are they going to light up the room and make connections with others? Are they going to have a positivity about them and a great attitude? Are they banging other people? Because if they are, they're going to bang me about who I am as their boss. Processes. Do I understand how they got to these results and how they work? Because I, if I don't, I'm going to get nervous because I want to know how my employees do what they do. And I don't feel a familiarity with them, even though they seem like a superstar. I just don't know how they get to it. So answering these unconscious fears and questions without them even knowing you're answering them, you're really doing them a favor because most managers haven't been trained. Some are getting trained very quickly in the rich science in a reversal of what I do, and they're looking for this. But the next, we'll go to interviewing them. So if you've made an impact on them that you have results, process, relationships, you bring energy and a great attitude, then you have permission to have the fortitude to turn it around and interview them and ask them some intelligent questions. And I know you had asked me in our interaction as we were preparing, what are intelligent questions to ask? So sometimes, you know, you don't want to ask a question that's obvious that you should have found necessarily on the website. However, what you and you always want to ask a positive question because the interview process you're trying to get positive responses out of people you're not trying to look like the mastermind you don't want to be arrogant in this you have to ask a question that gets them excited so a great question to ask people is Harpreet, i've seen a lot of great things on the website but you've been here for 3 years what's something that's great about this company that i wouldn't find on the website and nobody could have told me about and I ask you that, and you start saying what's great. And then you can also compliment someone in your questions. So I could say, Harpreet, what an incredible data science background you have. Um, you must get phone calls to go to other places fairly often. What makes you stay here? And how would you share that with me about why I should be here you know, with the company? And so you're complimenting someone, but you're also getting them to make positive associations. 
And it's sort of rather than a power push statement, it's more of a chance too where you're getting more intimate. You're drawing in a little closer to them. Your tonality might change. And you're allowing them to let you see into them and volunteer. So you're creating intimacy. You're asking questions, creative, thoughtful questions. You're not busting their chops in a way. Uh, some people will say, oh, I saw you had bad earnings four quarters ago. What's that about? You know, and it's like, People want to be like, you know, there's a flavor to everything. So there'll be a time you can ask those questions after you're hired, or you can find that answer before you get in the door if it's something that's that important. The next piece is closing them. So in interviewing them, if everything's gone well and you ask a couple good questions, if I do, I say, Harpreet, you know, I feel like we've had some great time today and I was able to go over my results, how I get to them, also my relationships. It's feels like there's a lot that I could do to add to your organization. If you were to hire me, where would you focus me uh, at first as far as projects are concerned? And so that's the beginning of a closing process. And it's light because I want you, I want to know if you're actually already beginning to see in your mind what you're going to do with Evan as you bring him in as the next data scientist there on your team. So I want to know if you're already there. And if you say, well, Evan, yeah, I see, you know, I've got two analysts and my engineers working on this project over here. I put you over here for two months, then I'd have you learn with this person. Great. You're already there. You're having the experience. Sometimes as I ask that question, I'll make three statements too. I'll say, you know, really look like I could help out um, in the recruiting of technical architects along with salespeople and that you're having trouble with mid-market salespeople and quantifying them and getting them to the table. That's something that I do very well. Where would you focus me from a starting standpoint, though, if you were to bring me on board soon? So I can also state a positive speaking to where I can add value, reinforcing that and ask a question out of it. So in some ways we're hypnotizing them about, you know, what it is we're focusing on and where we want their focus to be. So the second part really of interview them is if you say, yeah, but I see you over here and you'd be doing this and that, I would say, Harpreet, you know, do you see yourself uh, then next offering me the job, giving me the opportunity to come aboard? And this is a hard question. Sometimes it, it's meant to shake people up a little bit. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a question that a top salesperson or a CEO would ask when they, a CEO says, are you going to give me $20 million of business, Harpreet, for uh, your data science company? And then they stop. And whoever speaks first, they always say in sales loses. But you want to put people on the spot. Uh, in a gentle way, but in an accurate way. You want to ask them the question and never keep talking. You don't want to answer it for them. You don't want to build. You just want to ask them because you want to know before you walk out, if they've, you've hit every button and it's great, if they say, well, Harpreet, you know, I love what you've done. I do have to talk to some more people or I need to speak with my team first before we decide on an offer, then I would say, okay, I need to probe deeper. I would say, Harpreet, um, is there any areas I can cover more deeply or anything I can answer for you that you're concerned about that I didn't already related to my background? And I say it in a very warm, welcoming tone. It's not the same tone as when I'm delivering them and pushing energy towards them. I'm creating a space of intimacy, connection, closeness so that they can open up. And so a lot of times someone will say when given permission, 
would say, Evan, you know, I felt like you hadn't done anything uh, over on the consulting end of things. And we're going to have 30 openings there come December. And, you know, I know it's sales right now, but I'm concerned that, you know, would you be able to handle those? Then I can then say, well, Harpreet, actually at Oracle, I did 80% sales hiring, but when that would be filled, I'd focus on the consulting teams. And I broke three records there. I also did the same thing at Siebel Systems and SAP and three of the unicorn companies. And then you might say, oh, well, you did. So I've handled that concern. And then I would say, are there any other things? You know, I'm glad I was able to handle that for you. Make them comfortable in sharing their concerns because sometimes it's something that you can address accurately and honestly. If they say they have a concern and you don't know something, say, you know, I don't know that, but I've learned these two things very quickly that were either similar to it or I'm a very fast learner, much faster than my peers. That was in my last two performance reviews. So the closing them, moving from interviewing them to closing them is a process of making statements and probing them, but then asking for the job. Because in some companies now, they want you to be able to ask for the things you need from a customer, from your coworkers. If you don't ask for the job, even if you've done everything else right at Oracle, they won't give it to you. They, because they say, you don't have the courage to ask for the job. I've had them walk out of interviews and many companies say, hey, you did everything right. I loved him. You're right. Great candidate, but I'm not hiring him. And I'd say, why? And he'd say, he didn't ask me for the job. He doesn't want it bad enough. He doesn't have the courage to actually put me on the spot. Now, engineering, data scientist role, it's a different ask. It's a gentle ask. It's probing and then saying, hey, you know, we've really connected. Would you see yourself putting me forward, you know, for an offer with the company? Do you feel good about that? It's not, you know, a very hard, direct, are you going to give me the job? So, and then if you've closed well, I've had people, including myself, use the Rebridge science because it hits in a very specific order everything that hiring manager needs to know in order to say yes. If you've done that right, you might finish an hour interview within 35 to 45 minutes, and it leaves you with time where... The manager is either not a people pleaser and they're going to say, Harpreet, thanks for coming in. All right, I got to go. Uh, we'll be in touch soon. They're going to send you uh, information about the offer. Or they're going to say, well, we've got some extra time. So I hear you like to, you know, what do you like to do? Or So this is a time where it's another opportunity to make a connection with someone. Sometimes, Harpreet, people do this in the beginning. They'll say, hey, tell me about you. What's it like in Canada where you live? Do you do any outside sports? I have a friend from college that lives right up there too, and this is what she does. Use that five minutes, connect with them in a way, or if you have a person in common. But once again, you want to get right to your results once you've had that connection time. If you have time left at the end, they may want to connect with you. You want to use that time wisely. Maybe look at pictures on their desk. Sometimes they interview in a conference room, so you have to give an open-ended question of, hey, what do you like to do? What does the team like to do? Uh, you know, we're not working. Any activities? One thing that's so important to be careful of, though, I had a guy come out of an interview with a senior vice president one time who I thought was going to get the job. And the SVP said, no, I'm not hiring. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, he told me he was an expert in Italian after he saw the picture of my villa hanging on the wall that I own in Italy. And I said, oh, really? And I began to speak to him in Italian. 
and he's really only a B plus. And uh, so that means he's going to tell my customers that he's an expert and he, when he really isn't and that he's done his homework. That's how funky these things can get. So never say you're an expert unless you are. Don't even quantify your abilities. Just be a curiosity seeker and a connector. It's not a point in the connection time where you want to try to impress, show expertise, or hit something home. Even if you get talking about a club or something you do as an interest, if you're the leader of it, say, well, I love that so much. I actually represent a club locally. And but you don't say, oh, I've been the leader of this club for 10 years and I'm the best. And, you know, your sailing has already taken place. This is just about human connection, gentleness, and having them feel a comfort level with you. So if you've done that, you've used the reap rich science as it's supposed to be used. And if you feel it's valuable, I mean, I can run through how I would interview with it. But I think that the biggest thing people sometimes only do halfway or fail to do is they don't write down 10 results from the last five or 10 years. Then they don't write down seven or eight processes. They don't practice getting their energy and their attitude going. Uh, they don't write down two or three relationships, two long ones, one quick one. They don't think about good questions that they're going to ask. They don't practice closing. And closing is important to practice because first time we do it, it's a nerve-wracking thing. It's like you're asking for the sale or asking someone out on a date. You know, it's like, hey, uh, and you put them on the spot. So it's good to practice with possibly friends or family, but it's also great to practice with someone you don't know that well. Uh, or practice in the mirror. So practice makes perfect. And to do these things well, practicing three to five times, but if you can do 10 times, doing all this might take you two hours. But if you paid 200 grand for an education, or even if you paid 100, or you just lost a job, and or you want to make an extra 20 grand, two hours is a very small investment of preparation and practice. Um, and if you do two and a half or three, I've seen it over and over again. You're going to be a pro. Absolutely love it. Yeah, it's a great framework. And, you know, head mentor at uh, Data Science Dream Job, we've got over 2,500 mentees. And data science interviews are very technical. And it's just part of the career path of data science. And students tend to just always, not students, but my mentees tend to always just focus on what technical questions are they going to ask me? What technical questions are they going to ask me? But that's not it. Like, that's not all there is. There's way more to it. And, you know, they don't hire just a technical skill. They hire an actual person. They hire an entire person. Um, and one thing that I see happen over and over, the sentiment I get from, from people is they feel like that the interview is something that is happening to them. Right? Yes. Like it's just, oh, I'm just going on the interview. It's something that's happening to me. But no, man, like just put in the work and be a part of the process instead of just having it happen to you. Um, take control of the situation as much as you can. Such a great point. That I've had MIT people try to memorize 1,500, 2,000 questions that they might get asked, and they're being reactionary and nervous. And I had a woman that went to Harvard, did everything right, graduated, couldn't get a job. And I met with her, um, gave her my book, and uh, yeah, I spent an hour and a half. I knew someone that knew her, her dad, and um, she ended up uh, getting a job with McKinsey that same week, and they called her and offered the job on the way home from the interview. So 
she took all of it and kind of used this to go on the offensive. And there will be technical questions, but as long as you get out all your rebridge communication, then you will have imprinted on their nervous system everything they need to know. So with wherever the questions go, answer them, walk with them. If you know something, know it. But part of your results uh, might also be, I've earned this, this, and this from a technical standpoint, uh, and I've achieved this, and I've got this many hours, and I have this many projects in here that you can look at. Um, I feel like I'm 20% ahead of my peers that I know of. You know, you can quantify that with a percentage. So results in tech questions, uh, normally a hiring manager will have questions, but if they see it on the resume and they get to ask a few of them, they're really, you know, a lot of times they drill with tech questions endlessly if you don't provide anywhere for the interview to go, if you don't lead. So at least if you lead and you present and you have the research science, you'll make an impact on them, on their nervous system. They will feel you're better and more, and you might spend half of your time in answering technical questions or other things. So it's just once again, proactive. The other thing is from a results and process standpoint, if you know certain technologies are part of things, you may include those in your results, what you've done with them, and also include them in your processes and creativity. Hey, I know we're doing these four things here in data science. I want to tell you, I've done 18 projects related to these four, and they were this, 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 and this. And here's the processes that I did to get my data and how I run it. So sometimes, even with technical questions, Rather than being reactive and jumping around, you can go on the proactive and try to implant that in your nervous system so you spend less time so doing that sort of stuff. So interview process typically has kind of like a flow of questions and in terms of how it goes from um, telling about yourself, walking through your resume, and then it kind of unfolds throughout that kind of like a very organic uh, process. How do we make sure that we're able to hit all of the points in the rebridge formula is it or are we trying to hit every point with each question we're being asked or is it kind of like the interview goes in phases how do we time this with the process i'm so glad you asked that that's so important and so when someone says uh, tell me about yourself what you know what why are you attracted to our company what you know tell me about your background if we can get in a statement, our results and our processes communicated to them with energy and enthusiasm, like a great attitude, then we've covered really about 60% of what we need to get out there because results and processes are the two deepest things. Relationships are much shorter. So often I tell people, cover your results and your processes. These are my results. Harpreet, this is what I've done. Boom, here, boom, here, boom, here. If you hit them with enough, that's truthful. If it's 10 things, they're going to be like, oh, my God. Okay, great. And then you might see them start to smile. Then the processes, and then stop. Give them that moment to ask a question. Sometimes they'll ask a question related to it. Sometimes they'll say, oh, my God, that's great. Well, we're doing a lot of data science stuff you know. here. Have they told you about it? Yes, they have. I've heard great things from you know, Kathy and Bobby, and I just want you to know too, um, I make great relationships. That's how I found out about this job. You know, I have three or four very long-term ones uh, from school, this professor, and he's actually doing a lot with machine learning right now. And 
Uh, I've made relationships with two people just spontaneously through my travels during my internship in the last few months, this person here and that person there. So you can answer a question, but then you slide right into the next part of the rebridge piece. So you want to get past relationships if you can. And that way you're probably 70% there. And then you don't want to interview them right away because you might be 10, 15 minutes into the interview. But a lot of times they will go back because you've directed it. And sometimes I've had people in technical interviews say, I only got asked one technical question. They went back to my results and how I did this and how I distinguished myself in college. And they want you to know how I did that. So they want you to know more about my processes. I find that once, especially in scientific interviews, once people know that you have results or distinctions, you can quantify your, your performance to them because it's not often done, right? People just say, hey, I've done this, I'm here, let's talk. They often get very curious about your process because that's what people do often in engineering and technology. They want to know, how did it come together? How did you do it? How did you make it? How was it broken and you fixed it? So getting results, processes, and relationships out, a very natural place for people to go is to your processes and maybe one of your results or two of them. So that's why it's so important to get those out first. If you've done that and you're 10, 15 minutes in, they might take up the next 20 minutes too. They might start if you hit enough buttons in their nervous system about things that they actually are looking for and need to know before they get a chance to ask it, I've had people say 15 minutes in, they started selling me on the company and telling me about the group because you've alleviated all these things that they don't even know you've alleviated by telling, giving them factual information on the proactive. So they might tell you about a trip they're going on, something they did, the team, the project. They might tell you about them. So happens go with it but there's a point where at about the 35 minute mark if they take up 15 20 minutes suddenly you want to bring it back to interviewing them and saying geez that's great information Harper. i really appreciate that you know tell me about it's an amazing company i love the culture the way the culture sounds why do you stay you must get phone calls because of your experience now with even better money what's made you stick in there so bring it to interviewing them then relating it back to all the connection you made over their questions and what you shared, and you begin to probe and pre-close and then close them. So if someone feels like you're handling things and they feel connected with you, sometimes they can go on and on and they could go right up to the end of the interview and you don't get to do your interview them, close them, and then humanity connection. Yeah, thank you so much for, for getting into such good detail on that research formula. You guys get an opportunity to get this book. It's on Audible. Get it on Audible if you like audiobooks. It's also available on Amazon. That is a great formula. I want to get into another concept you talk about in your book, which I thought was really interesting because I've seen it happen in interviews. And maybe in my earlier days, I was probably one of these people myself. The subtle defiance, right? So what is this subtle defiance? And how do we prevent ourselves from being subtly defiant? Great question. The biggest thing about subtle defiance is, are there areas within us that are running us that we don't know are taking over? You know, we're being defiant or we're saying subtly either I'm not going to go there or subtly kind of, hey, screw you. Or, uh, you know, the biggest thing about subtle defiance is 
if I was being defiant, and sometimes when we have a very smart mindset, we can be defiant. Someone says, well, this is blue. Oh, no, it's orange. You know, we want to kind of get into debates. And so, but subtle defiance is really about sabotaging things without knowing it in a way to subtle defiance is what is getting in the way of our delivery to someone or our process or our presentation where we actually don't know ourselves well enough that we're saying something to them directly indirectly or without knowing it and we can subtly be defined and sabotage our process and so there's a lot of ways that that happens but i was going to ask you I know that one graph you tell me about, you know, where you either saw it or used it or, or you know, have noticed it before, because I, I would love to go off your example. Okay. Yeah, well, I've seen it in candidates when I ask them about their projects or ask them about the work that they've done. And they're not really giving me the information that, that I want to hear, or they're not really digging deep into it. They're kind of hesitant or like, oh, yeah, we just, you know, it's just a, a project and, and being defined and I guess I'm considering it as defiance, but they're just not giving me the full scope. Like if it's on your resume and you've got it there, you should know this thing through and through. Um, and it's at that point where I have to, all right, well, now i got to start quizzing you on all sorts of technical stuff now. Um, so that would be the defiance on my part, I guess. It's like, all right, well, if you're not going to tell me about your, your projects, well, I'm just going to start giving you a verbal exam. Yes, yes. That's such a great point, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Subi, because I was thinking of that as well in a, in a very similar way, is that the subtle defiance is that I'm not going to participate fully, or I'm not going to listen to what you asked. I'm going to do it my way, and sometimes it can be an arrogance. Sometimes it can be a fear where they're just really not getting it that you're saying, hey, I want details. Bring, bring me step by step. Um, and sometimes they don't, they weren't that good with that project or they didn't do it deeply as they said they would. Um, sometimes people don't can't describe it. They're not used to describing. So that's why you as the candidate have to look at areas where you might not want to get descriptive or talk about or go deep on. And you have to be ready to quantify every little piece of those and not be defiant. So you want to really be aware of where you're not saying, and I hate to use this term, but where you're not having sort of a subtle screw you to people like, hey, I'm not going to do that. I won't go there. Or, And it's something that um, can be in any candidate. And sometimes people don't want to be pushed or probed too. So it's important to know yourself as well. There's some people I know that have sort of a flippant personality or they might say something or you know they don't want to go there so defiance is something taking over that you almost don't even see that's blocking you from being and giving what you should be doing and sometimes we know we're defiant when we say oh i'm not going to do this process that way i'm not going to sign in there i'm not going to do that yeah i know i'm being defiant but i always ask people beyond your defiance where are you being subtly defiant where you're actually being defined and people don't know, or they may know, but only really you know that you're being defiant or you're not giving the answer or you're saying subtly screw you. So that's something where you can have a great interview, but when you push someone, if they're subtly defiant um, and you don't like to go deep or go there, people can feel like you're actually really verbally saying to them, you don't matter. 
or screw you, or I'm not going to participate. So that's why it's really important when we talk about the inner landscape is to get to know your emotional natures to alleviate that defiance. And, you know, it's interesting, many of my best buddies as engineers or scientists and uh, very smart people, technical people, you know, one of the biggest things in personal growth we've given them is the challenge you know all this outside and you could give a course on things that I couldn't even understand what you're speaking about, you know, in recruiting. But what about this inner landscape? Do you know you enough to master the ship? And, you know, what's interesting too, I just want to add to that is sometimes I find that people that don't do the inner journey, that's part of the reason I did the winner's code about practices and visualization and eliminating fear and going very deep on these things is that I'll get people that are very analytically smart, but they're not happy or they're not joyful or they can't find that inner freedom. And it takes, it's not wrong. Many folks say, I don't have it. I don't know why I don't have it. It takes work just like anything else would if you want to get in shape, if you want to learn a new formula or coding. And so once again, but defiance to subtle defiance can interfere with effort, whether it's to answer a question, do the work on our inner landscape, uh, we can subtly be saying, screw you, I'm not going to go learn my inner landscape or visualize things. So all I can say is whatever we leave out in the process in becoming fully vetted in all these areas um, will probably affect us in some way. So if we leave out 10% of the research science we don't visualize or we get to find, I don't need to do this, I'm not going to do that, that's just going to take our chances down each area, probably 10% in what we do. So. It would be kind of like doing the code for something and leaving a piece out. Thank you very much for clarifying that. So we appreciate it. I want to get into the four types of hiring managers that we look for in a job interview. Can you briefly describe kind of their personas and how do we know which one we're dealing with? Sure, absolutely. And, and you had listed them in a certain order. I was remember which one was your first because I want to. Yeah. So I've got the uh, the power tripper, and then the defensive coucher, method man, and the rogue agent. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> yes, cool. so I love that. So you have um, no from this book, and that's very important too. And so the power tripper is usually coming from fear. Their attainments are about ego, and I matter either because that's just how I vet and, you know, deliver myself, or it's out of fear that I want to prove to you that I matter. So there's going to be some sort of power in the interview. Um, they're going to, you know, try to just take it over and push you and grill you and grind you and make you squirm in your seat and see how you react. So the power tripper, the unconscious question that they need answered is that you respect them and that you adhere to some of their expertise. And so with a power tripper, often I might say, and not that I could ever see you being that way, you know, you have a great way and in, in, uh, speaking and interviewing, but if I can do it as an example, if, you know, I might say, Harpreet, um, geez, I really love what you've done. And I would first say, I love what you've done, but then I would say, at some point within my first few sentences, you know, only you would know about this and kind of what's happening here, Harpreet, but my results as they relate to your world and what you're doing are these. So first, I'd give the power over to you and validate you that I respect you because what are you trying to get through your power trip? Respect. 
what's driving that respect, either fear or habit on how you measure yourself. So if I let you know that I respect you and I'm moved by what you've done, not in a kiss-butt way or going on and on and running down a list, you're saying, wow, it's impressive what you've done, you know, and, um, and then saying, well, only you would know how this relates to here um, and what's kind of happening here, but I thought if it's okay with you, I might share some of my results. And you can even ask a question or you can just say, you know, my results are this. And you may need to do that three, four, five, six times throughout that process. Validate their thought, authority, only you would know. Because technically a power tripper, a lot of times they think only they do know, or for power's purposes, they have to be the smartest person in the room. That makes sense. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Let's do one more of these, and then we'll jump into uh, our, our final question, and then the, the random round, as I like to call it. And the next one I want to uh, talk about, the, the next hiring one, the, the hiring manager personas, is uh, one that I think we might see a lot in data science, and that is the method man. Yes, yes. So the method man can get so attached to the methods of things and the processes of things that they don't get to really look at you and know you as a person and hear your results. They're just measuring everything by methods and what's happening, what have you done, and how do you quantify this, and how did you take this piece of information apart. And, um, and the biggest thing with them is that it's really important to connect with them, but then begin to lead them. So they're not always someone that you have to validate and say, only you would know, or I respect you. But listening to them, maybe saying, you've put together a great group and a great team here. Uh, I love what I've heard about. Oh, great. Thank you. Sometimes the method man doesn't get complimented that much. They're just always scrambling, putting data together, doing things. So the general compliment about them and the group, the method man too, the reason it's important to compliment the group and what they've done is sometimes they don't feel that they can touch people or connect with people. They're just doing methods. And so what do they do when it's time to interview? They evaluate you based on methods. They try to kind of prove things around methods. So Validate them, connect with them, but then them into your results. And a method man, if you validate them first and give them a compliment and you bring them into results, they then may start to really attach to your results and get into your results with you. And the funny thing about a method man is they may start to like actually get emotional as you have your results, your processes, because you've created a safe place for them to actually go stand with you in those. And they're one of the only ones that you can win over sometimes very quickly if you compliment them and then just they feel you're very prepared if you can quantify things the way the rich science is done because everything is quantifying methods aligned, organized. Thank you very much for sharing that. So final question before we jump into a random round. It's 100 years in the future, Evan. What do you want to be remembered for? So what I want to remember, be remembered for, first and foremost, is the guy who created the first science around interviewing that gave a predictable outcome for folks if they used it. And so far that has happened. Really beyond that, the dream goal is to teach how to create long-lasting change for people in their interview universe and in their habits 
and in how they change and stay changed over time. Because a lot of people teach how to change, but I'm working on a thing now as part of my graduate school stuff, but I'm back to it is covering every area a person would need to be probed into in order to fully make a change into their best, really strongest, enlightened self that would have an inner universe mastered and thus master their outer universe as well. Absolutely love it. And if you get a book out around that topic, I'll be happy to have you back on the show to talk about that. Great. I would love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's jump into the random round here with the first question. What do you believe that other people think is crazy? You know, I believe that there's an invisible intelligence running through all of this that is, you know, weightless. And I believe that energy, through this energy, through mastering it, visualizing it and capturing it, that we can actually create miracles in the universe and actually predict things. And I think a lot of people think that that's crazy. They don't think there's anything greater than us. And I say that because I've seen it and I've tried it. And I've even had some of my very skeptical friends that were highly smart try it with exercises for themselves over time. And they began creating relationships or results or inner peace. So we love that. Actually, I'm reading a book right now that I think you'll really enjoy. I'll be having this author on um, on the show as well. Uh, the Serendipity Mindset. Yes. The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. I think you'll, uh, you'll enjoy this book. It's really probably, like I've been through about 50 or 60 books this year, and this is probably top three favorite for sure. Um, really good book. That's amazing. I had heard on that one, and I will get that one. I love that. If you could have a billboard placed anywhere, what would you put on it? I was thinking a lot about that today. Um, perhaps the first thing would be Gandhi's statement, be the change you wish to see in the world. Uh, because we have to call people back towards causal action of what they're causing in every moment and being it rather than looking for it outside love it if there was one question you wouldn't not ask the interviewer what would it be um, one question that i would not ask the interviewer right so that you wouldn't not ask like it's the one that you have to like why would you not ask that question right oh wouldn't not ask so a question so wouldn't not ask i would me i would say that's a you know i think that we can ask a lot of things, but I would say, if I'm answering this correctly, you know, asking them about their biggest failures. I think, you know, we, we would stay away from that. But if you create intimacy with someone, you can say, you know, what have you worked through, um, especially if they give you a challenge or question around mindset. So, but I would be very careful, you know, as to when. You asked that, and if you've created the intimacy, and they've asked you the same thing. What's the strangest question you have heard an interviewer ask in an interview? Yes, yes. The senior vice president of sales asked someone, he said to this woman, are you a beer, cheese, and Porsche person, or a champagne and Rolls Royce woman? And I almost fell over. The guy was, you know, I was in there with a few others, and 
So that was the strangest one I've seen happen. Yeah, that's uh, what does that have to do with <laughs> doing the job? That's an interesting one. Yeah. What's the strangest question you have heard an interviewee ask in an interview? Sure. Strangest question I would say is they relate. There, there are a few that were just one person asked me, how do you think I show up in person? Give me some feedback at a point where I barely knew this person. I think that was a strange one. I think another strange one was um, we used at the beginning of the interview, we used to get my parking ticket before we get started. I don't, <laughs> you know. but um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen some things, but I think um, the strangest thing really around questions are not always the questions, but when people start to make statements and tell me things that I have no business knowing, and maybe they feel close to me, and I try to make it very sincere, but um, and I try to open people up. But uh, yeah, so more than questions, statements, some strange statements. What are you reading right now? So right now, it's interesting you should ask that because I went back to read Unlimited Power again by Tony Robbins, and I, I was very impressed with that, but I'm actually rereading three books. One is The Different Drum by M. Scott Peck, Community Making and Peace, amazing book. Also, he wrote a book, The Road Less Traveled, and he has further along The Road Less Traveled, but the book, What Return Can I Make?, and then beyond that, I'm reading the book Seed of the Soul right now, So, uh, which I had started to read many years ago. So I'm kind of going back. Peck is an amazing thinker, and uh, I'm using it in some of my teachings, some of his, uh, his thoughts. So that's where I am right now. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. So I've got this, this new thing going on where I go to a random question generator. Are you down for this? Are you up? Okay. Yeah. All right, cool. Let's, let's, let's do this. We'll do a couple of questions off of here. I'm pulling it up right now. All right. Random question generator in effect. What talent would you show off in a talent show? I would say my ability to public speak. Because I can play some guitar. I can't sing that well. But, yeah, to public speak somehow to get the audience all pulled together and drawn in. What have you created that you're most proud of? See, the relationships I have with my children, the openness and the love and the honesty and the humor. We have fun and uh, it's real. And watching them grow um, is a whole other level of enlightenment. So, yeah, thank you. It's amazing. I hopefully have that same with my kids. I'm sure you will. I feel it. Who are some of your heroes? So my heroes, Wayne Dyer is one of my main heroes because he took philosophy, psychology, and spirituality and brought it all into a language that anybody could understand and did it in an enlightened way that people really like to listen to him. His book, Real Magic, he's since passed. But um, M. Scott Peck is also another one of my heroes because... He really talked about uh, growth and suffering and the importance of the needing to be able to kind of have the discipline to work through things. And he gave an amazing distinctions in his book, The Road Less Traveled and others. 
And then I would say Victor Frankl is also one of my heroes. He wrote A Man's Search for Meaning, and he spoke a lot about finding meaning in the suffering, and that's how he survived. But he also spoke a lot about his inner world when everything had been taken from him and how the love he could feel for his wife even after he didn't know if she was dead or alive. And also um, when a guard had actually hit him with a very heavy object and uh, done something very mean to him, Victor Frankl uh, smiled up at that guard in that moment and uh, he changed that guard forever. That guard began sneaking him food after that and was actually became one of his biggest supporters. So, you know, those three books, um, I feel, create distinctions about the inner world and the human spirit. And they also helped me with M. Scott Peck's with uh, principles and then Victor Frankl's we have to suffer sometimes, right? And we learn from our mistakes and even falling flat on our face um, is where most of the growth is. They help me become a better man. I don't thank you for, sh- uh, for sharing that. Definitely be checking those out. So how can people connect with you? Uh, where could they find you online? Sure, definitely. So on LinkedIn, they can connect with me. That's a great place. Also, um, I'm on Twitter. The best email is I just have for my first uh, self-published book, the word interview and the word science at gmail.com. That's a great way. That's sort of a personal and business uh, email that stays with me if people want to reach out and ask a question. And so would love to hear from them. I'm also on Facebook and different pieces, but most times people just drop me an email and uh, or give me a call at the 508-630-6521 number. So, Right. Yes. Evan, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on the show today. I really appreciate everything you share. I know it's going to help the audience go out there and just crush it with their interviews. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the wonderful work you're doing. And uh, for my dear friends in the data science industry, who I love a lot. So it's an honor that you're doing this for everybody. Thank you.